Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Please, now as we listen, help us to trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning is from Daniel 3, starting at verse 8 through verse 30. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's orders was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the experience of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hairs of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeff Harden. I'm, uh, in addition to being a follower of Jesus, I am husband of one wife, Susie, and uh, two grown boys, John and Christopher. Uh, I'm also a professor in the Department of Integrative Biology. My lab is about a block over that way. Uh, it's great to be a part of what I think has been a fantastic series so far on the fruit of the Spirit. In your bulletin, in case you've forgotten, Galatians 5, and 23 say this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, Pastor Jim and, and Nate Hale have done a great job of unpacking the first six of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Today, we want to consider number seven. I just realized seven is a number of perfection. Don't get your hopes up. But we want to talk about faithfulness today. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but to me, American society is experiencing a crisis of faithfulness. Perhaps nowhere is that better demonstrated than in a poll from this June from the Pew Charitable Trust. In 1964, when I was four and a half, Americans gave the government a positive rating of 77%. Exactly. Since then, public trust in government has been dropping like a rock. In, a re in the recent poll from June, it's at a disturbing 20%. That's near historic lows. About two-thirds of adults, irrespective of party, said most people seeking elected office at all levels, quote, do so to serve their own personal interests, unquote. Ouch. We yearn for faithfulness, and this poll is, is crying out about that. As I think about my own life, 
and career, I know I yearn for faithfulness too, and that's what we want to talk about today. Pastor Jim uh, picked this passage as a powerful object lesson of faithfulness. And I have to say, Kobe, you are a saint for reading that entire passage. What an excellent job. Hopefully the names of the, the Los Tres Amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are burned into your memory at this point, and we'll be coming back to them. But before we do that, let's admit something. Daniel is challenging. Uh, in chapters one through six, there are six stories, what scholars sometimes call court tales, in which Daniel and his colleagues, in this case his three friends, are representing the one true God, and they're facing off against world superpowers. In chapters 7 through 12, which we certainly won't be discussing this morning, uh, there are a series of four fantastic visions written in a style called apocalyptic. And if you put all that together, Daniel reads sort of like a graphic novel. Sometimes it can seem bigger than life. It's really stylized. Nevertheless, the central message of Daniel is pretty clear. Despite how difficult things are now for those reading Daniel, God's in control. And he will have the final victory. And because God's in control, we can live in the midst of a toxic culture. Now, as James Wharton put it, Daniel helps us to, quote, live life now with both a trust and an obedience that reflects the ultimate victory of God. In Abraham Heschel's phrase, to live God's future in the present tense. In fact, we know Daniel was a huge encouragement to God's people centuries after the events that are described in chapters 1 through 6, when Jews were again under tremendous pressure to jettison their faith at the hands of a despotic ruler, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He sought to uh, defile Solomon's temple and centralize Jewish worship in Jerusalem. Many of the events in the visions of Daniel 7 through 12 actually appear to refer to these times. But I want to make the case that Daniel is relevant for us today as well. Let's consider, wait for it, three <laughs> aspects of biblical faithfulness in Daniel 3. First, the nature of faithfulness. Second, a key threat to faithfulness. And finally, the response of faithfulness. So let's first consider the nature of faithfulness. <clears throat> when I say faithfulness, what pops into your head? Think about that for a second. Maybe it's the first 10 minutes of the Pixar movie Up, which chronicles the life of Carl and Ellie Fredrickson in, in one of the most poignant depictions, I think, of a lifetime of marital faithfulness that's ever appeared in, in the theater. Maybe it's Samwise Gamgee and his buddy Frodo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Remember, Sam said this, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. Maybe you remember that. With apologies to Sean Astin. <clears throat> now, Susie's and my 33-year-old son, Christopher, has severe autism. He lives at home with us. He is a connoisseur of Looney Tunes. And one of the favorite cartoons is an adaptation of Dr. Seuss's Horton Hatches the Egg. 
Here's the, the print version. Maybe you've seen this. If you don't know the story, it, it's really great. Um, there is sort of a, if you'll excuse me, a fly-by-night bird named Maisie. She has an egg, but she doesn't want to sit on it until it hatches. And so she coerces Horton to sit on the egg. <clears throat> and he goes through a huge number of adventures um, and um, nevertheless is faithful throughout. And his mantra is this, I meant what I said, I said what I meant, an elephant's faithful 100%. Now what do these examples of faithfulness have in common? Well, one thing they have in common is a commitment once made that is not broken. In addition, it's a commitment that is tested by hardship. Carl in the movie Up is tested as Ellie's health declines. For Sam, he was tested by following Frodo in to the fires of Mordor. And uh, for Horton, well, the test involved being taken from his home, if you read the rest of the story. Okay, so much for fiction, but you get an idea of faithfulness. What about real life examples? <clears throat> well, one that's on my mind this week is another Ellie, someone named Ellie Larson. Ellie retired last week after 22 years as Christopher's tutor. Now, <clears throat> that is a remarkable track record of faithfulness to our disabled son. Susie and I are praying through what the post-Ellie world is going to look like. If, if you're interested in learning about Christopher and intrigued by the idea of companion care, we would love to talk to you. Now, biblical faithfulness adds on to what we've already talked about with regard to faithfulness, some extra ingredients. Uh, in the Old Testament in particular, faithfulness is predicated on God's faithfulness. We sang a hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It was all about that this morning. The, the basic idea in Hebrew of the word emunah is firmness, something we can put our weight on and trust. It's a key word when applied to God. In Psalm 92, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Yahweh's chesed, his covenant love, is linked to his faithfulness, emunah. Now, in return, humans show faithfulness back towards the God of the covenant. Habakkuk 2.4 very famously says, the righteous shall live by their faith, it's often translated, but we could equally well say faithfulness, emunah. Trust in God is crucial for biblical trustworthiness. And that idea carries over to the New Testament. <clears throat> the noun pistis means faith. Pistos means faithful. Without faith, there's no faithfulness. It's the same in English. Hebrews 10.23 20, says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's the same idea. The faithfulness of God allows us to be faithful back towards him. Now, Daniel's friends exemplify these ideas, and they put more meat on the bones of what we've been talking about with regard to biblical faithfulness. 
Let me sketch out a couple of ways I think that that works. First, they were embedded in a culture without succumbing to the culture. Maybe you remember the backstory. Shortly after Nebuchadnezzar became king, <clears throat> the Babylonian Empire made the southern kingdom of Judah a vassal state. And that meant that they did what they did to other vassal states. In 605 BC, um, a number of the best and brightest of Judah were deported to the capital city of Babylon. That included Daniel and his friends. Daniel 1.4 says that they were youths without blemish, probably teens. Upon arrival, Daniel and his friends got a new name, and that was part of a sweeping cultural assimilation project. They were taught the literature and languages of the Chaldeans, chapter 1 says, which included uh, Akkadian, a difficult language they probably would have learned by reading well-known Babylonian myths. They would have learned divination, in case you don't know what that is, that's interpretation of the internal organs of sheep. Gross. They would have also learned about dream interpretation. The point is, they were steeped in Babylonian culture of the day. <clears throat> and Daniel 1 doesn't give us any sense that they particularly objected to what they were learning at Babylon U. What they objected to was the training table they were offered, and that's the, the focus of chapter one. Nevertheless, they remained within the culture. Now, a second thing I think we observe with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they cultivated faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to think that in a crisis, I'll somehow rise to the occasion, even if I've let small acts of faithfulness slide. Hopefully none of you are like that. Um, but that's a dangerous game. And in fact, the opposite pattern is displayed by these three friends. Their earlier decision to abstain from the king's training table laid the groundwork for their bigger decision in the pressurized situation of chapter three. You know, Jesus said the same thing about this basic pattern. In Luke 16, 10, he said, he who's faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. They had cultivated a pattern of faithfulness. Now, finally, Daniel's friends displayed excellence. Daniel 1 verse 20 says they were at the top of their class at Babylon U, 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom. They get promotions in chapter 2, and their professional competence is never questioned when we get to chapter 3. They're excellent at what they do. So Daniel 3 sheds some light on the ingredients, the nature of faithfulness. But secondly, it also sheds a spotlight on a key threat to faithfulness. At the beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar had a huge gold-covered statue built, apparently outside of town. It was, had strange dimensions, 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. With those kinds of dimensions, it probably wasn't a statue of a god. We don't really know. Maybe it was a stylized statue of Nebuchadnezzar, or maybe a, a monument to his empire of some sort. Now, many think Nebuchadnezzar took the wrong take-home message from chapter two, where he had a dream that was interpreted by Daniel, where the head was gold, but there are other materials referring to other subsequent kingdoms. 
He thought he would make an, a statue entirely of gold. And not only that, but of course, Kobe read beautifully the whole apparatus of bowing down to this amazing statue. All of the higher level functionaries, from the highest level administrators uh, to, to the lower level administrators, bow down to the statue once the music was piped in. And I think the droning repetition of the list of instruments, uh, the list of the functionaries, is meant to be funny. And Kobe read it that way. Thank you, Kobe. It's really almost robotic, I think. They're in lockstep with Nebuchadnezzar. Well, next comes an accusation driven by jealousy on the part of the functionaries. First part's a straight out lie. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. We have no evidence that they were disrespectful to the king. But the second part of the accusation is a true statement. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. This gets at the crux of the issue for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, given his polytheistic worldview, there are lots of options out there, many gods, um, religious pluralism was the rule of the day. Nebuchadnezzar probably thought nothing of the religious aspect of his request. After all, he wasn't asking these men to deny Yahweh as their personal god. He only needed to make a quick bow to the statue. Nebuchadnezzar probably thought, eh, no big deal. Why be so concerned about your strange monotheistic religion anyway? You can always practice it in private. What's the core threat to faithfulness in what Nebuchadnezzar was doing here? <clears throat> the Oxford mathematician John Lennox points out in his book on Daniel Against the Flow that, quote, Nebuchadnezzar absolutizes the relative. Men and women can't live without absolutes, so they eventually take something of relative value and absolutize it. From time immemorial, the obvious candidates have been the state, power, wealth, and sex. Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, I think we can see at least the first two are in play. And this is the fundamental problem of the idolatry that's at the, the center of Daniel chapter 3. We've already said that today is Reformation Sunday. Martin Luther thought a lot about idolatry. And uh, in his larger catechism, he said this. This was in your reflections page in your bulletin for today. Commenting on the first commandment, Luther says this. You are to have no other gods. What does this mean? To whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by, quote, God, unquote. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that I say is really your God. There's a lot to think about in Luther's statement, but it actually gets worse. G.K. Beale, in his book, We Become What We Worship, makes a persuasive biblical case, I think, that idolatry has another huge cost. He says this, also in your reflections page. People always reflect something, whether it's God's character or some feature of the world. If they're committed to something other than God, they'll become like that thing. Always spiritually inanimate and empty like the lifeless and vain aspect of creation to which they've committed themselves. 
In other words, the threat to faithfulness was very real for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the stakes were incredibly high. While we've looked at the nature of faithfulness, we've now talked about a key threat to faithfulness, let's now move on and examine the response of faithfulness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't seem to be looking for a fight. We don't get the sense they're looking to become martyrs. Maybe they'd avoided the festival entirely. The text doesn't really say. What it does say is that when they were brought in for questioning by Nebuchadnezzar in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar asks, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I think the implied answer, of course, is, well, none of them, because I'm super powerful Nebuchadnezzar. But the question prompts a plain response from the three friends that's the climax of the story. It's right in the center of what Kobe read for us today. <clears throat> now, there's an ambiguity in the language here in verse uh, 17. I like the ESV, which is what you had printed in the bulletin for today. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. In verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Straight talk from faithful men. Now, what might they have said instead? Well, they could have rationalized. Maybe something like this. We all know that idolatry is vaporware. There's nothing real here. It just doesn't matter if we fall down and worship externally as long as we don't worship the idol internally. Or maybe they could have said something like this because maybe they were pragmatists. If we die and the Babylonians replace us, who will help our people? We are too important to die over this whole idol thing. Now, of course, that's not what they say. There is no rationalization in our text for today. There's only one choice for the three men, and it's not dependent on a good outcome. And that's very important for us to think about. They say this, we serve our God not because he can work miracles, although we know he can. We serve him because he alone is God. That's our motivation. And then comes verse 18, but if not, it's not a lack of faith. In fact, it's preeminent faith. It's a humble acknowledgement that God is sovereign and he can do as he chooses with them. And that's the way in which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exemplify biblical faithfulness. Now, of course, we know the rest, and Kobe read it for us. Despite stoking the fires of the, the oven to excess, the three men survive unharmed, except for the ropes that were holding them. Not only that, as we see in the rest of the story, Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth figure in the oven whom he takes to be a heavenly being, maybe an angel. Some people think a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. Someone who represents God and is present with these three men. 
What a story. What an amazing story. Well, the challenge of this story is a lot of us have had the flannel board treatment in children's uh, Sunday school. Um, I don't know, maybe we've seen the VeggieTales version of Daniel. Um, and uh, the, the challenge for us, I think, is to think about how to apply um, what we read here in Daniel 3 and come away with some lessons for our lives. It's a challenge for me, I'll admit, but let me suggest a few ways that we might think about the faithfulness that we see in these three men in Daniel 3. First, I want to remind all of us what uh, Pastor Jim and, and Nate have already said in their sermons in this series. The fruit of the Spirit is fundamentally God's character being worked out in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Biblical faithfulness, which we said rests on God's faithfulness, is impossible unless we're intimately connected to our living Lord day by day. Second, Daniel's friends show us that it's possible to remain faithful in the midst of a toxic, idolatrous culture. Now, we could talk a lot about how they did this. They chose their battles wisely. They did their work with excellence. We've already talked about some of those things. I think that should inspire people like us to do the same. The challenge for us is to see beneath the surface of the culture when it's not a life or death situation like these three men were facing. I think that's hard because I think imperceptibly we can be moved away from biblical faithfulness by our surroundings. The idols in our culture wear many clever disguises and are worshiped by seemingly well-intentioned people all around us every day. Unmasking those idols is going to take wisdom that I think only God can provide in the moment, just as he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, for me, it might be saying no to the idol of identity capital. I think university professors are particularly prone to this one. Am I defined by my research output, my teaching evaluations, how many chili peppers I get on ratemyprofessor.com? I don't know. All of those things. Those are about my image and my productivity. They're not really about my identity in Christ. And thinking about my life that way might mean less professional success than others around me might enjoy. Now for you, it might be another kind of image project, the image you project through social media, or the idol of expressive individualism. For others, it might be the idol of health, or safety, or a personal relationship. Or especially, given the upcoming election, the idol might be a political agenda. Are we willing to give these up? A third lesson for our lives, I think, is that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those are their Hebrew names, um, show the importance of community. Remember Stanley Milgram's famous experiment from last week, the electric shock experiment? I mean, the not actual electric shock experiment. 
Remember what Jim said? Being good is easier when you're in the presence of others who might object to the poor treatment in the experiment. You know what? Faithfulness is no different. We need other people to encourage us to be faithful. Now, uh, my go-to person every day, frankly, is my wife, Susie. Um, She spends hours each day with Christopher on adventures to libraries and bookstores in and around Madison. She does it gratefully, without complaint. And she does behind-the-scenes kingdom work that, frankly, humbles me because I like to be up front and it, I like people to notice me. I need her faithful example every day. I also need the example of other people on the UW campus, too. That's why I've invested a lot of time in the uh, UW faculty staff fellowship over the years. There are other opportunities, like women's and men's Bible studies and households here at Geneva. These are great places where you can cultivate faithfulness together. So important. Now, the final lesson is a hard one. And I have to say that there are great mysteries here in God's providential working in the world and in our lives. The lesson's hard, but I think it's a thoroughly biblical one. And it is this. We shouldn't be surprised if we experience hardship as Christ followers. The Apostle Peter seems to be thinking of Daniel 3 when he says this in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The New Testament writers took it as a badge of honor if their faithfulness was validated by hardship. Now, I will admit that we are in a very favored position even now in the United States, let's face it, compared to many Christians throughout the world who are suffering tremendous hardship. And yet each of us has to think about how we need to be prepared to serve our risen Lord with courage. One of the comforting things here is that you may remember there was a fourth person in that fire. God has promised to be with us no matter what we are experiencing, and that can give us courage and hope. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me, unto us. Thank you that we can bank on that and make us the kind of faithful Christ followers who can do your work in the world and bring you joy this day and every day. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.